Welcome to Risk Roundup. What is collective intelligence and why does it matter to a digital global age and the imminent space age? For most of human history, collective intelligence was confined to a small groups locally in a digital global age because of the advances in information, communication, digitization technologies, internet and more we are now capable of having collective intelligence on a global scale across all boundaries in cyberspace, geospace, and space. To accommodate this shift in scale and the growing demand for transparency, collaboration, and cooperation, there is a beginning of a global effort to build truly collaborative systems at all levels, local, national, and global. In the coming years, the emerging collaborative collective intelligence systems will likely have a potential to dominate all processes across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in short, referred to as NGIOA. To discuss collective intelligence further, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Norman Johnson to Risk Roundup. Dr. Johnson is the chief scientist of Referentia Systems and is based in the United States. Welcome, Dr. Johnson. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Great. Thank you very much. This is exciting. Wonderful. So uh, before we go start discussing the collecting intelligence, it's important that we discuss the evolutionary journey towards the mutualistic NGIOA symbiosis, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia. The digital global age has brought a beginning of an end to nations living in isolation and the beginning of nations living in an interconnected and interdependent global economy. This is a stepping stone to the coming tomorrow of a space age. Today, individuals and entities across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia stand on the brink of a technological tsunami in cyberspace, geospace, and space, in, in short, referred to as CGS. This is fundamentally altering the way each component of a nation lives, works, and communicate to one another. In its scale, scope, and complexity, the technology revolution triggered transformation across CGS is unlike anything NGIOA or humankind has experienced before in any of its prior technological revolutions. The speed of the current ideas, innovations, technology, and breakthroughs has no historical precedent and is fundamentally disrupting almost every component of a nation. In addition, the breadth, depth, and impact of these changes heralds the transformation of entire interconnected and interdependent systems of socialization, education, innovation, production, management, governance, and so much more. While there is no way to calculate effectively just how this information, communication, and digitization technology revolution or evolution will unfold, one thing seems to be clear that the silos are breaking across nations, its government industries, organizations, and academia. What impact do you see because of the imminent breakdown in silos? Um, I think the challenge is that the kind of hyper-connectivity that we're experiencing is both a uh, opportunity, and many of us see that in our personal lives, but it's also a uh, kind of profound challenge too. We, I think all of us in our personal and uh, governmental lives are seeing uh, systems reach what I would call a complexity barrier, where this, the 
kind of traditional systems are no longer uh, can actually solve the problems needed to uh, address the issues that are arising in society. And I, and I, I see that as the tension that we're in right now. We have new resources coming online at the same time that's creating a higher complexity that is challenging all our systems, whether it's in our personal lives all the way up to uh, international governments uh, to solve those. Yes, very true. It is getting very complex and nations are made of government industries, organizations and academia. If we speak broadly of the components and of course the individuals and each of us, each of the entity has a separate uh, role in the existence of a nation. But we all are invariably linked together, having a coexistence and mutualism sort of mm -hmm. symbiotic relationship. So application of evolutionary theory, if we apply the evolutionary theory, theory to the nations or NGIOAs in a digital global age, it leads to fundamental questions about challenges, competition, struggle and survival. And this increased NGIO competition of a digital global age is a source of worry to so many as it has developed highly turbulent and highly fragile NGIOAs. Right now, if you see across nations, there is so much turbulence and there's so much uh, fear because of that. But however, if we, a broader understanding of technology revolution and evolution, considering not only interactions within and across NGIOA, but also cooperation within and across NGIOA would introduce some sort of balance into our understanding of fundamentally evolving very complex NGIOAs and this highly fearful and controversial time in the digital global age. Now, as NGIOAs are evolving on the back of technology transformation, where do you see the collective NGIOA evolutionary journey going? Uh, see, this is, you know, we're, you know, we're each uh, conscious individuals. Our, organizations also have a self-awareness and we believe in our kind of hubris is that um, it, it will question of how much does society progress through uh, kind of self-aware individual group or national action versus uh, kind of self-organizing emergent collective action. And I think in our hubris, we actually think that most of the time it's actually, uh, you know, some leader somewhere. Uh, take a, a very good example is the fall of the Berlin Wall, which totally changed everything. Uh, you know, pretty much every intelligence source said that that was not predicted. Uh, it was a surprise. And if you go back and actually look at how that occurred, it was not a one leader. It was not a group that did it. It was actually collective self-organization. Uh, there was kind of a loophole in the East German uh, laws that allowed uh, small farmer collectives to meet and they they met uh in small groups i think no larger than 10 but they had an extreme uh interchange between the groups so it was uh, kind of like a spreading of a signal through the entire population through these small small groups very much like uh, open spaces or world cafe uh, 
techniques uh, allow for community consensus. And so, you know, that was a major world event that changed the history of the planet. Uh, yet it happened uh, from kind of a bottom-up process. And I believe that's, uh, in many ways, our only hope is because we're being totally challenged to uh, rely on experts or leaders to solve problems. Very true. And that is an excellent example that you give about the Berlin Wall. And there is a growing belief now that integrated NGIOs or, you know, collectively, they would be smarter than, you know, very few decision makers who are at the top taking decisions for everyone. So uh, this is like, you know, not only individual nations, but globally, it would foster innovation and they would collectively be able to come to wise decisions. So collective intelligence and societal evolution gives us new insights for understanding how our social and economic activities should be organized in a digital global age. So irrespective of whether we are looking at cyberspace, geospace and space, do you see a need for new systems, new methodologies, new framework tools and technologies that can remove the selfish behavior of individuals, entities, or any component of a nation? Absolutely. That's kind of a leading question. The, um, you know, the fact that we continue to have uh, significant problems and the problems are getting worse, uh, you know, the uh, global warming, the total inability to address probably one of the most urgent issues, you know, that will affect millions of people, maybe billions of people. Uh, yet we have no kind of uh, constructive mechanisms to deal with the kind of conflict of nations, conflict of corporations to go forward. So absolutely, there's a, uh, there's a definite need for newer methodologies and probably a symbiosis between you know, human resources and technological resources uh, to you know, provide uh, methodologies that just have not existed before. They will self-evolve out of necessity or we can, you know, take research that's happened over the past 20 some years and actually say, what do, what are the features required in these resources in order to make them work? Yes, absolutely. Now, let, let's talk about the technology transformation and potential for the collective systems. The advances in information communication, digitization technologies and internet and so many other technologies, especially uh, the internet, if we talk about the connected computers and computer code, uh, now allow most connected individuals from across nations to work together in so many new innovative ways. Blockchain technology allows nations the digital infrastructure on which the global systems can be built. Do you see that the time is now ripe for many more such systems to benefit from collective intelligence? And how should we structure collective intelligence systems so that collectively NGIOA can act more intelligently than any individual or entity? Mm -hmm. um, you know, because we are so uh, immersed in our technology, we probably actually don't uh, really appreciate the change that it's occurred. Certainly, you know, we have faster access and various things, but 
Uh, let me just give one example of uh, how fundamentally the information age has changed uh, how we interact. Uh, you know, previously, maybe as a researcher, I used to go to my bookshelf and pull down a book and I would open it up, find a reference, I would use that reference and, uh, you know, write a paper, give conclusions. Now, when I do it on the using information systems, the entire world can benefit from my access to that information. And it knows my context, it knows what I went after and that. Now multiply that by, you know, a billion people and you all of a sudden begin to have an opportunity to uh, collectively uh, aggregate information in optimal ways that can help everybody. Yes. And, and, you know, certainly we see this with, uh, for the last 10 years, 15 years in Amazon's uh, uh, product referencing, but we're also seeing it in, in many, many, many areas now. But it's still a uh, kind of an evolutionary process where uh, maybe companies are trying different things, but they really, uh, I'm sure, I think don't really appreciate the um, the systems they're creating yet from kind of a more uh, uh, broader perspective. Yes, very true. And those are great examples. But for the benefit of our global viewers and listeners, Let's briefly talk about what exactly is collective intelligence and what is the goal of collective intelligence? Why does it matter more, more than anything today in cyberspace and geo, uh, space to have space? So to have this collective intelligence, how would you define collective intelligence? Okay. Uh, in many ways, uh, collective intelligence has been around historically for a long, long time. Uh, in uh, a democracy could be viewed as a collective intelligence, uh, a jury system, uh, you know, on and on. So those have existed and they rely very strongly on kind of uh, traditional social processes. The, uh, the collective intelligence that I'm most interested in and the one that certainly in the last uh, 20 years has caught many people's attention is what you might call uh, emergent collective intelligence. And it's where the uh, global outcome, the collective outcome actually can't be traced back to any individual performance. So some excellent examples are the neurons in your brain. I can't look at just a single neuron or you know, any of their capabilities to uh, capture and describe how the brain as a whole functions. Uh, the same is true for uh, the stock market. Um, the stock market as a whole, the S&P 500, uh, is actually the metric by which uh, you know, investment managers are, are judged. And uh, they may one year outperform, two years outperform, but very, very few individuals outperform the S&P 500 over 10 years. There's only been three individuals ever that have done that. And that, that should tell you that, uh, you know, a lot of the ways which we say 
we need an expert to solve a problem is is actually not uh, a good resource in complex systems because they uh, they may perform well once, but their performance isn't reproducible. Very, so, very true. And those are uh, great examples that you gave. So the um, uh, I think the future of emergent collective intelligence, and I'll, when I say collective intelligence, I really mean emergent collective intelligence, is uh, kind of a combination of these uh, information processes with our information systems. So as I mentioned before, uh, information systems know in detail what I do. There's a great depth. There's also a great breadth as well, you know, because there's such a broad diversity. And there's an ability to uh, retain all that information for long terms, which has good and bad sides. Um, maybe as things change, some information should be gotten rid of. That's why we forget <laughs> things. Um, so there, there are kind of technical challenges in that. So collective intelligence is really an expression of a higher function of a collective as compared to an individual. And then emergent collective intelligence is how that occurs in a emergent uh, self-assembly bottom-up process, like the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yes. Uh, what uh, there are, uh, you know, what started this field of emergent collective intelligence uh, was uh, independent research by myself and uh, Professor Scott Page back in the late 90s. And um, we had uh, some research results that were so kind of shocking, we actually could not get our research published. Um, for example, I had one reviewer say, I don't see what's wrong, but it can't be right. And I have that in quotes. <laughs> wow. And and so so what are some of these non-intuitive, unexpected results? Uh, one is that uh, the a diverse team of, of different individual perform performance levels selective randomly outperforms a team of best performers. So this is totally contrary to all our. Um, paradigm of solving hard problems. Let's hire the best. Let's get the team of the best performers together and, and solve it. Well, what, what these research studies shows is that uh, best performers are actually very highly specialized. And in, uh, in highly complex problems, you actually need uh, kind of broader uh, understanding and poor performers tend to explore the space more. So that's why a group of poor performers are kind of essential to a global performance. Uh, a good example of that is in uh, ant foraging. You know, finding the shortest path between the potato salad and their nest is an emergent uh, process. No individual ant understands what an individual or what a optimal shortest path is. Yet, as a collective, they find it. And what's interesting is that right before the, the shortest path is kind of uh, condensed by all the ants and they're all following the same path, if you look at the uh, paths of all the ants, there's a lot of randomness 
in each of the ants contributions, but their aggregate is the shortest path. So there's no one ant that's actually taking the shortest path. So this says that natural selection, which says survival of the fittest, isn't a paradigm of performance for these type of emergent collective systems. Yeah, that, that is a really good example that you gave that. And while collective intelligence is primarily seen as an initiative in which there is willingness to share and an openness to the value of distributed intelligence for the common good of humanity, there are still, you know, we need to understand what are the causes affecting collective, affecting the collective intelligence. Where do you see the collective intelligence evolving based on all these causal factors? That's an excellent question because it, um, most of these uh, kind of academic studies that I did and Scott Page did uh, assumed uh, that all the individuals have some level of performance, uh, they have perfect communication, they agree on all the options, they have the same goals, and there's no absence of bias. And none of these are true <laughs> in our uh, actual experience. So, so we have a gap between the guidance given by these kind of collective uh, demonstrations and of intelligence and our real world situations and where the where i think uh probably one of the largest gaps are is in um kind of conflicts that occur when you bring information together and so this it may be because we interpret information differently it may be because we're biased and we view the problem from a different perspective um, a lot of that is tied in with uh, kind of cultural. So that's what makes uh, kind of global uh, coordination challenging is that, uh, you know, two cultures may view the same information from very different ways. One is acceptable, one is not acceptable. And um, so this, all of this, that kind of discussion identifies what future resources will be able to uh, will need to be able to do they will they will have to uh, take information that is biased and uh, be able to assemble it to a useful uh, conclusion uh, you know some level of higher performance um, and not be influenced uh, by that that bias and uh, it, an interesting research result that I had uh, last year was that um, in looking at the previous uh, kind of idolized collective systems, if I introduce a kind of conflict between the individuals and in that they view information differently, some see an option where another doesn't see an option. Uh, collective uh, intelligence still occurs if those uh, kind of biases are uncorrelated. Yes. So the, the biases become a source of noise and the collective intelligence is very tolerant to high levels of noise. It's part of the robustness. Yes, very true. And we see the examples of bias, you know, in pretty much all the systems that we have across nations currently. And uh, so, 
risk management is also one of those systems where you will see bias for who are you managing risk, whose risk are you managing, and who are you accountable to, and how risks are managed. It, it's all very biased system that we are looking at. So that is at the heart of you know our efforts at this moment, the risk group's efforts. So let's talk about the collective risk management system. Demand for transparency, collaboration, and cooperation is increasing in a digital global age. In the face of this reality, it is important to evaluate whether few decision makers across NGIOA can be trusted to make all the decisions about risk from cyberspace, geospace, and space, and all its interconnections. These, the promoted risk intelligence from the few versus collective risk intelligence is a choice we will have to make as a society in the coming years, uh, in the coming days and years. Do you see collective risk, in, risk intelligence playing an effective role in how we manage our risk? Because we feel that the current risk management system is highly ineffective because there are you know, independent risk and interdependent interconnected risk. And we don't have a clear you know, system or clear structure or framework by which we can make anyone accountable to whose risk we are managing and which risks are transferred, which risks are insured, which risks are managed. So we end up having bigger and bigger, very complex systemic risk. And then, you know, everyone across nations has to suffer because of that. So this is, you know, at the heart of our effort. Do you see the need for collective risk intelligence playing an effective role in how we manage our risk? Absolutely. So maybe it's important to parse the problem into pieces. Um, a lot of what you just spoke to was, uh, you know, given some type of risk process, how do you meet the needs of the kind of different conflicting stakeholders? And that, that absolutely is part of it. You can't uh, be exclusive. Uh, it has the results of any risk management process has to be tailorable to the different stakeholders. The, the other part of the problem that has to be separated out is just the mechanics of how you do the risk uh, process with these uh, biased, uh, maybe conflicted, uh, certainly compartmentalized uh, contributions. Um, the, and I think that's, uh, you know, the tailoring we can do. I think that's a, a tractable problem because it really just requires communication between what their goals are and what your uh, methodology can do. The, uh, the actual assembly of the risk management process of where you get the information, how you elicit it, um, how you process it and stuff is, is the real challenge. What's, what's interesting in my personal career was, uh, you know, I spent 20 some years at Los Alamos National Laboratory. And uh, in my last uh, 10 years there, uh, I was working in BioThreat, uh, which is a, a, a historically 200 year period from epidemics to now weaponized uh, biothreats. And, um, very complex, uh, very compartmentalized, siloed. Uh, just for the United States, it's a huge budget of uh, NIH uh, public health budget alone is in the 20 billions of dollars. 
the total uh, kind of bio threat public health budget alone is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and everybody has their own stakeholder in it. So um, one of the projects I was involved with was to do a national bio, set, bio threat risk assessment. And it was called for by a presidential directive. And what I didn't know at the time is what we came up with was uh, fully aligned with my other kind of uh, non-technical research interests of collective intelligence and how to uh, solve grand challenge type problems. And it was only recently when I was talking to the NIH and giving a talk to their program officers that I realized, oh my gosh, there's actually was, uh, we actually solved uh, uh, the grand challenge collective intelligence challenge. So uh, just to give you a quick idea, um, the original presidential directive of the national bio threat, uh, it was very short term. We had nine months to complete it. Uh, nationally, there was uh, probably over $20 billion, million spent on that in a year period. And the uh, presidential directive set uh, kind of high goals. It, uh, it had to be a transparent process. It had to capture uncertainty and strife. It had to identify gaps in the understanding. Um, it had to guide prioritization uh, of ongoing investments. It had to be able to be quickly updated. It had to be tailorable to uh, different agencies. Um, and it had to deal with the whole classified, unclassified world. And what, what, became very, very clear and, and we actually believed that it was, it really couldn't be done at the level being required was because we knew that when we would get the stakeholders in a room uh, that they would just start arguing with each other and defending their own turf. And um, in the work that we did prior to that, we uh, used a, a fuzzy logic uh, risk assessment method that um, essentially allowed every contributor, every subject matter expert in any minutia to be able to give what they wanted to contribute, even if it included biases and, and things. But we always knew that there would be some kind of uh, kind of core little piece of knowledge in there. And then we, we did over 40, 50,000 elicitations of these experts in small groups. If we had done it in a large group, it would have caused uh, conflicts to occur because they'd start posturing. Um, and, uh, and the fuzzy logic allowed for people to give kind of, un capture their uncertainty in it. And maybe they thought there were two answers. Well, they could say that in the logic. So in, in combination of, you know, a methodology that reduced conflict by letting everybody feel they contributed, even their biases, to doing full stakeholder engagement, doing small group elicitation, uh, we were able to create a process that actually achieved those uh, 
desirable features. And it was transparent because, because it's a technical process, you could actually look at it and you could do what if. What was interesting and, and maybe an additional feature is it also enabled uh, the discovery of surprises or innovations. And, and this is something that's very challenging. Uh, you know, this is uh, Rumsfeld's, you don't know what you don't know. And, and so, for example, in uh, biological threats that required uh, respirators, uh, the, the analysis very quickly identified that that was the weakest link. Most hospitals only have a couple of respirators in a large, uh, you know, influenza uh, pandemic or a bio threat that challenges the respiratory system you would have 90% deaths because you wouldn't have enough respirators. And so that was a big aha. So that's a, that's a very good example of how technology with a methodology can uh, do a highly uh, conflicted risk assessment and get you know, results that everybody uh, buys into. Yes, now that is a great example and uh, we also have uh, over the years faced the trust problem in the risk management process itself. There is yeah. lack of transparency, lack of trust, but now because of the blockchain technology, it, it solves the trust problem and uh, it enables NGI components to transact with each other within entities or within, you know, and across industries or uh, nations to, and it removes each components need to trust the other. Mm -hmm. it, you don't need to personally, you know, even if you don't like someone, you don't trust someone, it does not matter because the blockchain provides you that uh, transparent trackable system by which nobody can, you know, manipulate the system. So uh, risk group, is right uh, we are right now on a mission to epitomize the collective intelligence as a synergistic intersection among independent risk and interconnected and interdependent ngioa risk we believe that this will help us achieve an effective process for better collective risk intelligence and management than silo and fragmented risk mm -hmm. approach that we have across nations which does not manage risk effectively however knowing what defines and determines collective intelligence is perhaps the biggest question we face today. When we say we want to solve societal problems or NGIOA problems using collective intelligence, do we have what it takes in terms of determination? Because there are a lot of many complex problems all across nations that, that needs to be solved. But there is also a need for desire. There needs to be a desire and there needs to be a determination. We have the technology, we have the capability by which we can build all these systems, collective systems, irrespective of whether it's a global warming system or whether it's a risk management system or whether any other system. We have the capability, but there needs to be a desire and determination. Do you see that we have what it takes in terms of determination to be able to go on that journey? Yeah, this, um, I think this is, you know, where there is a technological complexity barrier. There's also a sociological complexity barrier. And I, I think a topic that we haven't touched upon that uh, I worked for two years with a, uh, uh, 
an expert in uh, conflict resolution. She was in uh, Mer Dr. Merle Efkoff. She was in um, the Carter administration. She helped uh, in uh, Ireland between the Protestant Catholics uh, in the Middle East, in Bosnia. And uh, she spent two years at Los Alamos and we worked together to try to develop a science for conflict resolution. And after about six months of, of discussion, what we figured out was that the kind of missing understanding is the kind of the dynamics of social identity. And um, what, what most people don't understand, and even a lot of social scientists, is that social group identity is actually a characteristic of social organisms. You know, we think humans are different. No, this is true for, you know, other primates. It's true for social insects. It's true all the way down to slime molds, this, uh, this concept of social identity. And one of the, and, and so what social identity, the way we define it uh, functionally is that if somebody does something to your social identity group, it's, you feel like they did it to you. So uh, let's say somebody attacked somebody in your family, you would feel like you were attacked. And that's true for companies, it's true for ethnicities. Um, you know, there are many, many examples of that. So we all have a sense of it. What, what isn't well understood and appreciated is that when uh, social identity gets triggered, um, we go into a, uh, uh, an old cowboy phrase of circling up the wagons. We, we create us versus them. So a good example is when 9-11 happened in the US, um, we became hyper-patriotic and the Muslim American community in the US became uh, uh, pushed out, ostracized, uh, repressed, uh, even abused when we should have been doing just the opposite. We should have turned to them and asked them what just happened. Tell us how to deal with this. And, and because of our, our patriotic circle the wagon attitude, we did absolutely the wrong thing. We became aggressive. We attacked the people that did it rather than trying to understand why it happened. And this is, this is true in, um, in almost any type of polarized situation. And, and risk uh, methodologies will fail in that and uh, largely due to this uh, kind of innate uh, social psychological process of when we get uncertain, when we get threatened, we put up barriers and it's us versus them. The, the way I capture that is to say the messenger is more important than the message when you're triggered, when your social identity is triggered. And, and really to make progress, we have to do just the opposite. Uh, we have to make the, the message more important than the messenger. So this is what future risk uh, methodologies will have to do. And there, it comes out in two ways. Um, one of the things that we realized is that um, when you bring uh, polarized leaders together, you can't actually tell them the right answer. They have to be able to discover the right answer. They have to say, well, if I do this action, 
what will be the consequences. And if, and if they can see that it actually leads to more violence, um, uh, you know, economic challenges and everything, then they may not do that. So, so it's very important to let uh, kind of these polarized leaders discover the right answers rather than to be told the right answers. So that's Absolutely. one. Absolutely. The second. Yes, please. Short. The second uh, observation is that um, when people are in are in uncertain and feeling threatened, they become triggered, and so that's not a state where uh, they can actually contribute and move forward. So we need to find ways of uh, making it people feel relaxed, making them feel in a trust situation. And, and this is why uh, we ended up using a small group elicitation in our methodology, is that in small groups, people didn't feel threatened. And so they could actually relax and not posture, not be polarized. Where if we'd done it in a large group and we tried that, it was a nightmare because everybody was talking to their identity. Yes. Yes, very true. And the, those are excellent examples you gave. And I think uh, what you talked about 9-11 and how there was a backlash against the uh, Muslim community, it's a perfect example. And I think media can play a big role here. Media plays a role in promotion of collective intelligence. Yes. Initiatives, initiatives like Risk Roundup, what we are doing right now, they are directly trying to promote and enhance collective intelligence by collective participation of decision makers from across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia. We have participation from uh, all across nations, all across industries. And that is the goal that the ability of this digital media to easily create, store, retrieve, communicate, share information, predominantly in digital format through connected computers and internet allows for it to be shared without difficulty. So these risk roundups that we are creating, it is so easy for us to share it across nations in all kinds of formats. So through interaction with new media like risk roundup, webcast podcast that we are generating and you know sharing the knowledge, information and intelligence, it easily passes between individuals and entities across NGIA resulting in a sort of form of collective intelligence. What we are doing is trying to create collective intelligence here. So the use of interactive new media like Risk Roundup promotes digital interaction and this distribution of CGS security risk, that means cyberspace, geospace, and space security risk, knowledge between users across individuals and entities across NGIA. So when we view collective intelligence through the lens of risk management, the internet, enables collective risk intelligence at the CGS scale, cyberspace, geospace, and space. And it facilitates the emergence of a global CGS risk brain. Do, what, what do you think of the making of a global risk brain if we are able to create this collective risk intelligence from across nations, from cyberspace, geospace, and space? We have the cumulative you know, risk uh, identification capability, risk evaluation capability, risk management capability, we are in essence creating a global risk brain. Global risk brain. What do you think of the making of a global risk, potential making of a global risk brain? 
Well, it's, uh, you actually kind of answer your own question because you use the word brain. Yes. Imagine if your visual cortex were, you know, off by itself and saying, well, you know, we have a problem here. We need to involve more resources and maybe your emotional part of your cortex and all these different parts of our brain have to somehow coordinate with each other. And, and through evolutionary processes, we have more or less achieved that and it's fairly robust. So I think the, uh, the answer is it will happen. Uh, we will have a global uh, risk brain, but because we don't fully really understand the processes on how to make that work and be tailorable to the different needs, um, it will be an evolutionary process with, with you know, dead ends and various things. Uh, so, uh, one, one caution I would make is, um, uh, and this goes back to my research of the last couple of years, is that often we want to create methodologies that are objective. I mean, that's what science is all about, is we throw away information that's not useful and we, we try to distill the essential information to get conclusions. And we do that in our risk methodologies as well. And in fact, all of science is based upon that. Well, what um, a, a good example of the failure of that mentality is the intelligence community in any country, but particularly in the US. Uh, they, after a couple of notable failures in the past where there were biases in the system, they tried to come up with uh, very objective uh, systems from the very beginning to collection of data, to assembly of data, to analysis, to conclusions. And what they found is that that failed. Um, the system was too complex for that objective process. And the, the big aha is that a lot of uh, information needed to solve a hard, uh, a grand challenge, hard problem is embedded in uh, often uh, subjective information. And if we extract out what we think is objective, we lose the context of that objective information. And so what we need are methodologies that actually can deal with uh, biased uh, subjective information and be able to aggregate the uh, little nuggets of useful information to actually get a, a final risk assessment that is an emergent uh, from the, you know, the many contri diverse contribu contributions. Yes, no, that, that's an excellent uh, suggestion you made. And you're absolutely right that there are still a lot of, you know, questions that needs to be answered, how to create this kind of global structures that can effectively evaluate those kind of, you know, risk, because not everything is, you are right, that we would like to create an app, absolutely objective system but there are so many different variables that needs to be considered and we are promoting open source triangular linkages of risk management, security and global peace dialogue. And what it means is that we fundamentally depend upon the formation, participation and growth 
of an active and vibrant global peace uh, fan community that would both actively promote risk groups, risk philosophy and approach and create uh, all different kinds of content extensions and additions to the risk management, security and peace initiative. Because these are all interconnected. If we manage our risk effectively, we will achieve security and security will lead us to peace. So there are, but at this point, there are so many different uh, variables that we need to consider. We need to answer so many different questions. And it's going to take some time before we are able to effectively figure out a vision, a broader, you know, collective vision by which we can, you know, go forward and manage risk effectively for everyone across nations. But let's talk about the shared organizations that we see across nations uh, currently. At the rate technology is changing, no individual or entity across NGIOA can fully keep up mm -hmm. in the innovations needed to compete. Instead, organizations like ours are drawing on the power of mass collaboration and inviting all these very you know, distinguished decision makers from across nations into collective participation of using their knowledge, ideas, talent, and you know, wisdom so that we could create things you know, collectively together. We could come up with the collective wisdom and collective intelligence. But we believe that the global NGIO collaboration will help us not only reduce cost for initiatives, but also reduce the time needed for completion of projects or initiatives. And that we see across so many different initiatives. Do you see new ideas being generated and explored by collaboration or co of cooperation of individuals and entities from across nations uh, outside the confines of entities or nations which are currently proving to be very valuable and we are looking forward to seeing how they uh, are you know shape of the uh, coming tomorrow like you are working on so many different initiatives in the collective intelligence and you know so many others are working on it where where do you see the applications of collective intelligence currently across ngiv yeah um before i answer that let me just touch on one uh point that you made and that's how important it is to get participation and uh, uh, and participation in an effective way. And I've, I've kind of mentioned it on and off, but uh, let me just give a story which uh, uh, identifies an opportunity and also has a major challenge in it. In one of our first meetings of the bio-risk assessment, we brought together you know, 20-some agencies in a, each person, you know, there are maybe 25 people in the room. And we were expecting a, a major conflict to occur. Uh, we outlined what we were going to do and, uh, you know, basically how everybody could contribute what they wanted uh, and thought that represented their work and they it would be transparent. They could see how it affects the outcome. And after a few minutes of silence, um, there, half the people in the room are raising their hand and say, put my name down to help you. And these are mid-level managers and, uh, and it totally was shocking that they were volunteering to uh, help this process. It, it was completely unexpected. And, and I believe that the reason was is that and they said as much as that I've lived in smoky rooms my whole life 
decisions are made uh, not based upon any type of risk management. They're made on, you know, budgets and power and various things. You know, I welcome a process that actually is transparent, defensible, and whatever. So that that's the good news, is that if you can offer uh, these uh, kind of siloed groups, uh, including nations, an opportunity to contribute in a fair process, they may step up. Now, what's interesting is um, down the road, their bosses, which were the you know, the top agency uh, executives uh, hated the process because uh, they're the ones that became the problem and, uh, and made it challenging. So this is, this is what we run into nationally, is we, we need to find uh, methodologies, approaches, uh, interactions that occur not at the top, because the top, they posture too much, but to enable the, the people that are kind of in the trenches, and it's their, they actually want to see a positive global success and how to enable them. And I, you know, I think uh, what I've seen is that our European uh, colleagues are well ahead of everybody else in achieving this. Uh, in government, in business, uh, in kind of all levels. Um, you know, the more power a system has, the uh, less likely it is to change. And I think that's a lot of the experience we're seeing in the United States right now. Yes. Yes, we do see that. You are absolutely right about that. Now, the digital global age and the imminent space age has brought us, the humans, so many complex challenges on our doorsteps. While it has brought us complex risk and challenges in cyberspace, geospace, and space, it has also brought us the advent of so many new forms of research and communication and new different markets are emerging, new products and services and new models and the way of doing things. So uh, there are, we, we, we briefly you know, talked about information, communication, technologies, and internet. But what other drivers you see that matters for collective intelligence to go forward and evolve successfully for everyone? Yeah, I, um, you know, I have to apologize. I'm not keeping up with the current uh, plethora of activities happening, largely because, like I said, it's an evolutionary process. We actually don't know how to... Um, look ahead and see what features we need. It's, it's in this kind of natural selective process where some individual tries something and it, it works. And if it works again, then it uh, survives and does better. It's very difficult to look at what's out there right now and actually say, uh, you know, what will be the future methodology or not. And that's why I think, um, going back to these kind of high-level goals of transparency, defensibility, tailorability um, are the key features to what we want these risk assessment methods to be. And then, then from that, we'll actually we'll get the kind of beneficial uh, outcomes that we desire.
Yeah. So I, I, I can't really comment on specific technology. I understand that. I appreciate that. Now, perhaps, you know, a closing question for us to ponder is probably how do these uh, new kinds of integrated cyberspace, geospace, space risk intelligence help us understand what it means to be an accountable human in the first place and what our role as humans on the earth is. I think and I hope that this approach to thinking about collective risk intelligence can help us to understand not only what it means to be individual humans, but what it means for us as humans to be part of some broader collective risk intelligence entity. What would you like to tell our global and, uh, viewers and listeners about what you, your vision is and what you would like to see uh, everyone you know, across nations working together for the collective good, uh, good of the humanity, for the benefit of humanity? Well, I have a huge success story of collective intelligence that most most people aren't aware of. Uh, my specialty in the last couple of years professionally is uh, in cybersecurity. And that's what my company, uh, Referential Systems Incorporated, based in Honolulu, does. And um, I've been a participant in the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, uh, uh, process of creating a new cyber risk assessment methodology uh, initially to be used for critical infrastructure, but it's now being used more broadly. And uh, NIST was chosen because they're an independent arbiter. They uh, didn't have a bias uh, that many other agencies had. And what they did is over a period of uh, three years, they brought together the community and listened. And then would have another meeting and say, well, this is what we heard and listened again. And um, what's come out of that is what's called the, uh, the cyber uh, um, risk assessment process by NIST. And, it's being adopted uh, both within the US and now internationally. Uh, uh, in, uh, the British and Italians have uh, adopted it and actually use it within their kind of governmental systems. Um, so why, why did it work? Well, again, it was a comprehensive, uh, full stakeholder, no uh, squelching of individual contributions to create this kind of universal process. The, process, the resulting methodology gets criticized because it often is not specific enough, but it has to be general enough to apply to everyone. So that's, you know, that's the trade-off that you have to do. But what's, um, I think of, primary interests in the cybersecurity world, and I think it has analogies to the greater world, is that uh, in cybersecurity, we have uh, vulnerabilities that are just similar to what we had in public health 200 years ago. We didn't have a concept of personal hygiene. Uh, we didn't have uh, safe water sources and everything. And there needed to be kind of a, a basic uh, level of public health in order to for the community to uh, be safe 
And that's the same thing that we need in cybersecurity as well, is that we have to kind of raise the bar and have a cyber public health to, to create a new basis. And then on the other side of the spectrum, there are these kind of advanced threats that maybe in the bio world are you know, nation state biological threats. So we, we have that kind of uh, bimodal risk uh, that we have to address. And I think the same is true in kind of global uh, risk issues too. We have to bring everybody up to some kind of uniform standard uh, where we take care of each other. And then we can focus on the you know, exceptional ones that are really uh, going to challenge us all, like global warming. Yes, very true, very true. And we do need those systems. Uh, it is said that none of us knows everything. I mean, this is a very uh, popular saying that none of us knows everything, but we all know something. So mm -hmm. collective intelligence is the foundation of the space age and even for the digital ongoing digital globally. So the capacity of NGIOA communities to evolve toward higher order of integration and performance through collaboration and innovation is a need of the time. So thank you, Dr. Johnson, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on collective intelligence and our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the information you provided on collective intelligence benefits to the society and its future. So even if a single individual or entity can come up with an idea to explore collective intelligence, to solve complex challenges facing humanity based on the understanding they received from the discussion we had today. This Risk Roundup Dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Thank you very much. I'm optimistic about the future. Uh, I welcome any uh, questions from people. Just send them to norman at santafe.edu. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So today technology has democratized information and intelligence. Let us all embark on having individual and collective NGIOA goals to elevate the discussion on this critical topic of collective intelligence to move beyond self-centeredness and sound bites and into the hearts and minds to shape the coming tomorrow in cyberspace, geospace and space. Let us all be self-aware, conscious, informed and develop our minds and collectively evolve. Risk groups, cybersecurity, geosecurity and space security risk research centers are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing NGIOA and CGS administrations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts fit into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.